Hey, Junior here. Thanks for hitting play. You know, there's a lot of talk about becoming the GOAT, the greatest of all time. How do you become the GOAT? Well, Jesus tells us how. Hang with. We're talking about just that. So he's 29 years old, just 29, yet he commands tens of thousands of seasoned warriors. And for the last nine years, he's marched those seasoned warriors 11,000 miles, conquering nation after nation, region after region. Millions know his name. His treasury is larger than anyone in known history. He's just 29 years old. You know what I'm talking about? Alexander the Great. His name will live on for thousands of years as the Great. He's the pinnacle of conquest, and, and he knows it. Yet tonight he sits in a depression. His men, his wealth, his fame, his land, all around him, but a realization has just hit him. And so he ducks into one of his tents and he weeps loud enough for his men to hear, he yells, there are no more worlds to conquer. Why weep over this success? Because of this word right here, conquer. See, before Jesus walked the earth, conquest meant greatness. Conquest was the route to greatness. You want to become the goat, the greatest of all time? You conquer, and not just land. Three conquests brought you greatness. You conquer politically, you conquer sexually, and you conquer land. That was the formula for reaching greatness. Now, this is one of the, the reasons that war was rampant in ancient history, because war provided men the opportunity to conquer those three things. If you go to war, you rise in the ranks. So you get this political conquest. You can conquer land. And this is awful, but this is just true. As men gained land, they took women as war prizes and would conquer sexually. And so rape was everywhere. STDs were, were a pandemic. It was horrible. But this is how men thought you become great. Like this is how Herod the Great earned his name, the Great, Herod the Great. He was a political mastermind. He conquered politically. He conquered a last, a vast area of land, and he was a disgusting sex maniac, held frequent orgies. If someone did not please him according to the way he wanted, he would push them off of a cliff, and his insatiable lust for women turned into infatuation with children. See, we see him today as disgusting, but ancients called him the great. That is how you become great. And this universal philosophy led to an incredibly violent, corrupt, unstable, perverted world, far worse than anything we've ever seen. Yet it all changed at the arrival of one man who redefined the word greatness. Everything changed when greatness was redefined. This is so good. We're going to be in John chapter 13 today. John chapter 13, really encourage you to grab a Bible. It's page 900 in the chair, or the Bible's in the chairs, otherwise we have the Bridge app, and on the Bridge app, we have the Bible on there, as well as the bulletin and notes. John chapter 13. We have a lot of ground to cover today, so let me pray, and we'll jump in. God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that you have given your word to us. You've entrusted it to us. God, may you remind us just of the weight of this moment right here. One of the most important times this week is we gather together with family and hear from Dad. These are your words. We believe they are true. We receive what they say. Please open up our hearts. 
engage our minds, tune out all distractions, and really zero us in on what you have for us today. You will speak. I ask that we listen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we enter into John chapter 13, we find ourselves in the city of Jerusalem. A cool evening spring breeze sweeps through the upper room. The sun sets below the mountain city, cooling the already crisp spring air. The city around is bursting at the seams. The families from all over the region have pilgrimaged here to celebrate Passover together. And so each house in Jerusalem is, is packed with extended families getting together and reuniting and having parties. Camps outside of the city walls pepper the hillside. I mean, this city is just slammed. But there in that upper room is like a peaceful oasis. See, all day long it's been crowds, it's been chaos, especially around Jesus. The disciples are exhausted from crowd control. I mean, their ears are still ringing from the masses of people trying to shoulder their way to get to Jesus. But up here in this room, up here you can just sit back, relax, and let your guard down. Yet little do they know the specialness of what is about to take place up here. See, what will happen in these next few minutes will not just be retold for thousands of years. What will happen in these next few minutes will somehow change the world as they know it. Mankind's obsession for greatness is about to be turned on its head, redefined, and life on earth will never be the same because of what is about to happen in this room. John brings us in verse one. He says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart, out of this world of the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Uh, John, who's, who's writing this, was Jesus' best friend, and you can kind of see in verse 1 how John's just kind of reflecting back. So John's penning this as he's, as he's older, but he's, he's thinking back to, to that, that one night, that night in the upper room, that's such a powerful night, far more special than, than we knew. Like, Jesus knew that his time had come. And then in verse 3, he says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God, was going to go back to God. Now, this is an incredible verse here in, in verse 3. There's so much here, and often we miss this because what's about to take place, some of us have heard this story when we were kids, you know, Jesus washing feet, so great. We love that story, so let's get to the good stuff. And we skip right past verse 3. But verse 3 can really open up the whole story to us. And so I just want to unpack this verse uh, for, for a little bit. The key phrase is all things into his hands. If, if you were to dissect this phrase right here in, in the Greek, another way to put this would be the Father had given all power into his hands. You, you imagine that for a second. All power into the hands of Jesus. So there sits Jesus in that room, that oasis in a chaotic city. They're eating dinner. The disciples are sharing stories from the day and having to wrestle people away from Jesus. And Jesus is sitting there and he realizes something that no other human being has ever felt. All power. The very thing that Alexander the Great wept over because he didn't have. The very thing that Ramses the Great was after. The very thing that Herod the Great who tried to kill Jesus obsessed over. And there sits Jesus at the table feeling all power. What do you do when you are the most powerful person around? See, the BC greats would say, well, you conquer. That's what you do with your all power. You conquer more. Power move. Take more land, pull rank, take more women, conquer. 
You embarrass your enemies. You, you slay the competition. Flex your greatness. I mean, Judas is right there, Jesus. Verse 2 says that you know he's going to betray you, so strike him down. Then head to the temple and obliterate the religious leaders who are right now plotting your death. Use that power. Flex it. Conquer. Take what's yours. What would you say? Or better yet, what do you do when you are the most powerful person in the room? When you sit at that conference table at work, and you don't think about it in these terms, but you look around the room and you're the most powerful person sitting at that table because everybody at the table, they, they report to you. Or teachers, you walk into a classroom, and I know the students wouldn't admit this, but you're the most powerful person in the classroom. Or parents, you walk into your house, you're the most powerful person. What do you do? Or you pull into your business parking lot, and all of those cars parked outside of your business, all those cars, they report to you. Or you just got a big bonus check at work, big check. You feel the sense of power because money can do that to you. And you're thinking, man, I have more money than my parents have ever had. And it just hits you, man, I, I have power here. What do you do? What, what do you do? What is your first reaction when you are the most powerful person in the room? See, there sits Jesus, the greats throughout history have only dreamt of having what Jesus has right here, all power. And what does he do? Well, let's see, verse four says, he rose from supper and he laid aside his outer garment. First thing he does is he takes off something that is valuable. Now, we know that Jesus' robe that he wore, his, his outer garment, was seamless. John later tells us that at Jesus' crucifixion, the Roman soldiers, they gambled over Jesus' robe because it was seamless. Seamless robes were very valuable. They were very rare. vast majority of people walked around with seams on their robes. In fact, a lot of times, just patches everywhere. Seamless robes were, were, were very rare. Now, Jesus was not a flashy person. He lived a life of poverty. But he's in ministry, and people would bless him with gifts, and this was likely a gift gifted to him by someone with means for him to wear around as a, as a nice, seamless robe. It symbolized respect as a rabbi, probably had tassels on it, so that when Jesus would walk into a synagogue or the temple, people knew, ah, this must be a rabbi. Just look at his outer garment. So if you look at verse 3, the beginning of verse 4 here kind of opens up this whole story. Jesus feels this all power that men had spent their lives trying to feel. Jesus feels this power, and what does he do? He takes off likely his only possession that he owned that was desirable. Feels power, first thing, he sheds his outer garment, his outer symbol of respect. And taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Now, during this time, if you were to rent a room, so that's what they're doing is they're renting this room, Jesus and his disciples. And when you would rent a room like this, you would typically get a servant assigned to this room. It's kind of like when you go out to eat and you have a table and you have a server that is assigned to that table. When the disciples came in, the assigned servant would have been there to wash their feet before dinner. Now, we don't know where the servant was. Maybe Jesus beforehand requested, please don't have the servant show up. Um, maybe they didn't have time to get a servant because this is all thrown together quite quickly. But for whatever reason, the servant's not there. And so Jesus assumes this position. What do you do when you're the most powerful person in the room? Jesus sheds his outer symbol of respect. He grabs a towel and he becomes the room's servant. Now we think of this, because again, we, we tell kids this story because it's such a sweet Sweet story. We think of this as such sweet terms. Oh, this is so kind. This is so sweet of Jesus. But you also have to understand this is extremely awkward. 
You can just feel the uncomfortableness in the air. An awkward silence just falls when Jesus grabs the towel and ties it around his waist because everybody else should have done this. They're the disciples. They work for Jesus. I mean, they think they're tired. They weren't the one teaching all day. But they didn't. Many of them walked in. They were preoccupied with their friendships, going on around them or, or eating. Maybe they were jockeying for position to sit next to Jesus. And nobody wanted to dishonor themselves with this task. Nobody wanted to admit that they were bottom of the org chart and they needed to grab the towel and, and the basin. Yet there's Jesus, the top of the org chart, doing that. This is very, very uncomfortable for the disciples. And in this act, Jesus is smashing the reigning definition of greatness. He's deconstructing their whole idea of what greatness is. And that is greatness is, and this is in your notes, greatness isn't in the flex. It's not in the flex. The greats in history, Alexander the Great, Herod the Great, Ramses the Great, they would totally disagree with this because they wouldn't be caught dead wearing this towel because greatness is about flashing it. Greatness is about peacocking. Greatness is flexed. Greatness is shoved in people's faces or as we would say today, greatness is like posted online for everybody to see. This is why Ramses the Great, his tomb, 3,500 years after him, still wows us today. People pay money just to go look at his tomb. I mean, this is a power flex. Or Alexander the Great named more than 15 cities after himself, just flexing his power throughout the region. Or Herod the Great built 15 palaces just for himself. 15 different palaces. And throughout history, greatness is found in flexing, leveraging your power to showcase it, build buildings, cities, palaces, statues. You need to flex to be seen as great. Today, we would say it's in the brands. You got to flex your brands. You got to flex your car. You got to flex your house. And here we see Jesus wearing a towel, obliterating mankind's view of the most. Greatness is not in the flex. In fact, those who tend to flex the most tend to be the most insecure. Our research has shown that those who flex the most on social media tend to be the least happiest. Men who peacock, women who show off, reality is they do so to temporarily feel something they don't feel. Great. A flex is often a cry for affirmation of something they know they don't have. And here we see Jesus showing us greatness is not in the flex. Greatness is him. It's doing what he did. It's humbling yourself. It's serving. It's emptying yourself of yourself. It's him. Knowing that he had all power, what Alexander the Great dreamt of, the pinnacle of greatness, the most powerful person, he stands there with a towel tied around his waist, about to rub the muck off the calloused feet of those who report to him. You continue on in verse 5. It says, Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, you wash my feet? He, no, 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 no. Whoa, whoa, what, are you, what are you doing? You're not going to wash my I'm your disciple. I work for you. The hands that healed people earlier today are not going to wipe the muck off my feet. And Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. It'll click later, later for you, Peter. Mankind will grade greatness different after tonight. But you don't get the weight of what's going on right now. You'll, you'll get it later. Just give me your feet. And the next few verses, Peter and Jesus kind of go back and forth. It's a sidebar story. It's a great conversation, but it's like a whole other sermon. So we'll just kind of put a pin in that for another time. But skip down to verse 12. It said, when he had washed their feet, whose feet? 
their feet. Who's there? The, the disciples, all 12. So Matthew, and Peter, and James, and John, and, and Andrew, and, and Philip, and, and Judas. And what was that moment like? Jesus knew, verse 2, Jesus knew that Judas, what Judas was about to do. Jesus knew what was in Judas's heart, the backstabbing, money-grabbing, critical traitor, Judas. That there's Jesus wiping the gunk off Judas's feet. And again, he's deconstructing the common view of greatness. Greatness is not in defeating our enemies, defeating our competition defeating those who have it out for us. Now, yeah, the greats in history, they would again, they would disagree with this. There, there is no greatness without obliterating your enemies. This is why Herod would throw his conspirators off cliffs. Alexander the Great uh, personally assassinated those who he suspected of betraying him. Ramses the Great made sure that art and statues depicted him stepping on the necks of his enemies. A greatness is in defeating your enemies. And there's still a piece of that in us. Because come on, how great would it feel to show up that coworker who went behind your back? How great would that feel? You've imagined it before. You've had imaginary conversations with them in your head where you just let them have it and you always win those conversations and it feels great. Wouldn't it be great to obliterate that annoying person on Facebook who's always posting politics on social media? You know, you just fantasize slaughtering their argument online. Like, don't we? It'd feel great. Or wouldn't it be great to expose that, that family member who's always one-upping you? Like the rest of the family would realize just how much of an attention-seeking putz they really are. It feels so great just to out them that way. See, it's not just Ramses and, and Herod and Alexander. We operate under the same idea of greatness. Feeling power is defeating your enemies, exposing them for who they really are, outing them and taking them down. Yet this is the position we find Jesus in. He looks at Judas's feet and is about to wash them. Yet how great would it feel to just blurt out, hey guys, this snake's about to betray me. Get him and watch the disciples just pile on top of him. How great would that feel? Or to call down legions of angels that just drag Judas off forever. Or as he washes the feet, just break every bone in his foot so he couldn't walk over to betray him. Yet there's Jesus cleaning his feet, the very feet that will take him to his enemies. Because somehow, some way, that's greatness. Jesus is on to something. Uh, verse 12, this is when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place. He said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? And I imagine there's this long pause and a few disciples are thinking, uh, yeah, you washed our feet, but we have a feeling there's more to it. And then Jesus says it. It's as if the whole foot washing thing was just kind of like the set and now Jesus is about to like spike the ball. This is so powerful. Look at verse 13. He says, you call me teacher and Lord and you are right for so I am. And there's no false humility there. Jesus says, I am the most powerful person in the room, guys. You call me your teacher and I'm your teacher. In fact, you call me your master and I am your master. I am that. I should have been the last person in here to do what I just did. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you ought to wash another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. If you're gonna to claim to follow me, I just set the example. You will live a life with a towel tied around your waist. You will wash your friend's feet. You will serve your family. You will serve your coworkers. You will serve your competition. You will even serve your enemies. 
Those who betray you, those who hurt you, those who have it out for you, your ex-spouse, your ex-business partner, your ex-friend, you will now make their lives and their jobs easier. If you call me Lord, this is how you live your life. That is greatness. I just laid aside my greatness to serve you. I just used my all power to wash your feet. This is your new operating system now in life. Having all power, I just served you. You've lost all excuses now to do this for each other. For truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Why would he say that? A servant is not greater than his master. Of course. I'll put this in context because if the master would do this, wash feet, if the master would shed his outer cloak, if the master would tie a towel around his waist, if the master would scrape muck off their feet, then the servants have no excuse. Were no greater than the master, and the master washes feet, how much more should we be doing? This is a punch in the gut from Jesus. And then he wraps it all up in verse 17. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you, happy are you if you do them. And this stuck. The disciples never forgot this night because they did this. I mean, for as much flack as we give the disciples, you know, things went over their head and they missed the mark and, and they failed and they, like, they took off on Jesus when things got hard. As much flack as we give them, these guys in the room, they didn't forget this. Other than Judas, they all did this. Like other than Judas, each of the guys in the room, they became celebrities after Jesus ascended because they became like the guys, the leaders of this new massive movement because they knew Jesus. They saw the miracles. Some of them were part of the miracle. So these guys were in like high demand. These guys became very influential, very powerful. They were the headlining speakers. Yet scripture tells us that not one of them leveraged their power and popularity for themselves. Oh, they could have. All of a sudden, you have thousands of people looking at you, doing whatever you tell them to do. Not one of them abused it. Because they remembered that one night. That night in the upper room on that chilly spring evening when Jesus took a towel and greatness was completely redefined. Greatness is not flexing. Greatness is not defeating your competition. Instead, here's how Jesus defines it. Greatness is leveraging your power for the benefit of others. Leveraging the power you have to benefit others, that is greatness. When Jesus knew that he had all power, he leveraged it for others. With all power, the power that Alexander wept for, the power that Ramses craved, the power that Herod the Great dreamt of, Jesus had it. And what did he do with it? He washed feet. And then what did he do with it? He went to the cross for us, for our benefit, for our salvation, making a way back to God. Greatness is leveraging your power for the benefit of others. And later on, when these disciples looked around the room and they realized they had the power and all the eyes were on them and people were following them, they remembered what Jesus did with his all power and they leveraged their power for the benefit of others around them. They leveraged it for the church because that is the new definition of greatness. See, so what do we do when we're the most powerful people in the room? We leverage that power for the benefit of others. Because we understand that one day our power will be taken away from us. The power we have right now is only temporary. And that day that it's taken away from us, the only thing that we'll have to show are the people that we benefited with our power. 
just one generation from now, that's all that will matter. Just one generation from now, nobody's gonna care what office you sat in. Not gonna care how great you looked or the vibe you gave off or the org chart you sat on top of. Nobody's gonna care about that. They'll care about the people you benefited. That will stick around. Greatness is about leveraging your power for others because that is the life that Jesus lived. But what does that look like, practically speaking? I mean, it sounds great, right? Today we love the idea of like servant leadership. That's like a, a big thing that we love talking about today. It was foreign until Jesus introduced it. Servant leadership, well, I love the concept, but what does that actually look like for us? How do we leverage our power for the benefit of, of others? Well, a few ways, we're gonna hit these really quick and uh, we get these from Jesus. Is Number one, you wanna leverage your power for the benefit of others, you have to aim for it. You have to aim for it. See, most of us, we fantasize or, or we, we think about, we love the idea of sitting in the corner office. I wanna be sitting at that desk one day, you know, or I wanna be leading the team one day. I wanna be leading that meeting one day. I wanna be higher on the org chart one day. And that's fine, but we have to ask ourselves, okay, but why? Why do you wanna be in charge? Why do you wanna make more money? Why do you want more followers? To leverage your power for yourself or for others? Like, what is your aim in all of this? See, over the past few years, um, I'll get some guys who, who ask me if, the, if they can preach. Well-intentioned guys, a lot of times are like guys who are like coming out of, of college, and so you know, they come to me and be like, Junior, uh, can I preach? And I always ask them, why? Why do you want to preach? I guess a rule of thumb, we, we tend not to take guys who, who ask to preach because often, not always, but, but often that eagerness is for the stage, for, for the light, for the attention. Like It can be really easy to like that kind of stuff. you know. And all the comments that people make out in the lobby afterwards, like, you guys are so kind. Even if a sermon sucks, you'll still come up to me in the lobby and say, great sermon, because you're so kind, and I really appreciate that. But some guys, they just like, they love, like, they love that. And so we try to make sure anybody that we put on the stage, their aim is right, to bless others, to serve others. Like I can tell you for sure, uh, Jordan, campus pastor here, his, his aim in preaching is all about serving and blessing. It's not about him. It's why he's up here. It's why God has given him that platform. But it's very easy, it's very easy, and I'm not just saying for preachers, but for everybody, it's very easy to chase something whether it's preaching on stage or whether it's a corner office or a platform or more followers or a bigger paycheck, it's in our sin nature to really chase after that stuff to leverage for our own benefit. But Jesus calls us to leverage that for others. And the truth of the matter is, some of us may not have what we're really chasing because God is saying, I don't want you to have that. You're just gonna leverage that for yourself. Maybe we'll talk about it when you aim to leverage it for other people. Got to aim for it. And then number two, you have to humble, humble yourself. You want to leverage your power for others, humble yourself. Jesus' little brother, James, wrote, humble yourself. Humble yourself. I used to think that, that was like a feeling that you're supposed to feel. You know, just got to feel humble. It's far more than that. Humble is a verb. Humble yourself is this action. It's this idea of looking to do things that are seemingly below you. It's Jesus, the celebrity rabbi who entertained massive crowds at the temple, grabbing a towel and tying it around his waist to wash feet. It's, uh, it's in our church, think of it in our context. It's the doctors in our church, or uh, we have a few lawyers in our church who serve in bridge kids. You go into bridge kids, you peek into bridge kids, you see like these doctors and lawyers just like jumping around like, like lunatics, just humbling themselves. 
I think of the couple at one of our locations, very successful couple who after the service will throw on gloves and go clean the bathrooms for the next service. I think of um, my dad. He wanted to take a, a break from, from preaching but still do ministry in our church. We just kind of take a, take a step back and rest from preaching. And so we asked him, like, what do you want to do? And he said, I, I'd love to, to work in Bridge Kids. And we said, no, we're not going to do that to our children. Um, <laughs> no, he, he, uh, he served in the nursery. And so instead of preaching, he was just carrying, crying babies and, and changing diapers. That is humbling yourself. We don't look for the stage. We don't look for the, the throne. We don't look for attention. We don't look for power. Instead, what we look for are opportunities to serve and humble ourselves, to leverage our power for the benefit of others. We follow Jesus into humility. It is an action. And then the third thing, you want to leverage your power for others, you have to aim for it, humble yourself, and then set others up for success. Set others, others up for success. See, our, our natural operating system is to look to position ourselves for success. How many of us have thought, I, need, I, I, I should be in that meeting? I'm sitting here at my desk, but I should be in that meeting. I have really good ideas. I need to be known this way. I need to remind others that I'm really good at that. I need to position myself for success. I kind of got to shoulder my way into those conversations. That's natural. But Jesus told us to live supernatural. And so instead of thinking of ways to position ourselves for success, we're to be looking to position others for success. This is true, healthy leadership. This is high-level leadership. This is leveraging your power to benefit other people. This is why I believe that Christians should be the best bosses. And so often that hasn't been true, at least in my own experience. I've had some great Christian bosses, but I've also had some terrible Christian bosses. But I think that all, good, all Christians should be fantastic bosses. Because a typical boss is going to think, how can I get everyone to work harder for me and better for me? And, and that makes sense, right? You pay them, so they should help you succeed. They should get the results. But the best bosses, the Christian bosses, should look at their teams and think, how can I pull the best out of them? How can I set them up for success? How can I create this healthy culture that brings out the best in everyone? Now, you still need to confront because leaders confront. You still need to push because leaders push. You still need to get results because results matter. But the focus is altogether different. It's about the people that I'm working with. See, followers of Jesus should look around and think, I am here to see the potential in others and set them up for success because that's what Jesus did. Jesus chose a bunch of misfit disciples Guys that no rabbi would ever even think about choosing, but Jesus saw the potential in them and he drew it out of them. Many can't do that. That is very hard to do, but that is our example. That is, that is what we are to aim for. See, a lot of us, we, we spend our time thinking, you know, man, if, if only people saw the potential in me. If only people knew like what I was capable of, I would get to make more decisions. I'd be asked to go you know, into, into more meetings. I would get that promotion. Think of the, the guy I was... Uh, was at a conference for uh, pastors or guys who wanted to become pastors. And, and one guy, he was like a student. And we were talking about this whole idea of like setting others up for success or seeing the potential in other people. That's high-level leadership. And, and at the end, he's like this Q&A and he raises his hand. He's like, you talk about like seeing the potential in others, but like nobody is ever looking at the potential in me. And, and I wanted to say, you should never be a pastor. You, you got to grow up, man, because that is not following Jesus. Jesus says, forget that. Stop looking at yourself. Look at the potential in other people and help them succeed. That is what you're called to do. That is following Jesus's example, and Jesus did that to the cross. So we aim for it, we humble ourselves, and we set others up. That is leveraging our power for the benefit of others.
Now, here's the thing with all this. I get the pushback with this. This feels threatening. Like to aim my pursuit at benefiting others, to humble myself. I mean, that looks weak. To be all about others, that is so countercultural. We can easily think, this is great, Junior. This might work for you and your little church. You know, or if you do like a little community service thing, or if you lead the Boy Scouts, that's a fantastic idea. But if I do this in my career, people are going to take advantage of me. Like, have you met my staff? I, I can't do this. I, I'll get behind. Others don't play by these rules. Like, I'll lose some things. People, other people will beat me out. Maybe. But the ones who own this live far better stories than the story you're aiming for. Stories worth telling. I think of one guy. Actually, uh, this guy, you might have a picture of him in your pocket. George Washington. I've been reading a biography of Washington. This guy is extraordinary and powerful. Like, I don't know what your goals are, what you're aiming for, but you're never going to get your face printed on U.S. currency. Like, that's just not going to happen, right? I mean, you, you talk about power. Like, that is legacy. Hundreds of years later, we're still walking around with this guy's picture on our money. And one of the reputations that Washington had was he was so good. And this is what made him so effective. He was so good at empowering others, using his power to set others up for success. Whether it was generals or leaders or, or, or people, soldiers, he was just constantly empowering others. And so I ran across this book called uh, Founding Brothers by, by Joseph Ellis. And there's this fantastic section in this book. And I want to read part of this section to you. Again, about Washington, legendary man. He writes this. It's first, it is crucial to recognize that Washington's extraordinary reputation rested less on his prudent exercise of power than on his dramatic flair at surrendering it. Let me read that again. First, it is crucial to recognize that Washington's extraordinary reputation rested less on his exercise of power than on his dramatic flair for surrendering it. See, after serving two terms as president, there was a lot of talk of Washington becoming emperor. Uh, some were even pushing him to become king. Like, man, this guy's the hero. Independence under his leadership. Like, he beat England when nobody else could beat England. Like, he sent the Brits home packing. Give this guy a crown. We want him. Make him emperor. And Washington kept refusing it. Not just refusing to be emperor or, or be king, which that's big in and of itself, but he was refusing to be the third term as president. They had to come up with like this name for a country president because they didn't want a king or an emperor. And now it's third term and Washington's saying, I don't even want that. I don't even want the third term. Meanwhile, the, in England, the king of England, so this is Washington's old enemy, had heard all about this. Everybody wanting Washington as king and Washington turning it down, even refusing to serve a third term. And after hearing this, the king of England had said this. He said, if he does this, he will be the greatest man in the world. Not if Washington accepts the power. Not if Washington holds on to the power. Not if Washington leverages his power to, to build his own kingdom. He will be the greatest man if he steps aside and actually empowers others. And true to his word on December 22nd, 1783, Washington surrendered his commission to Congress. And I love how the author puts it. He said, in so doing, he became the supreme example of the leader who could be trusted with power because he was so ready to give it up. To give it up and empower others. 
leverage it for the benefit of others. See, leveraging your power is not a sign of weakness. It is a sign of extraordinary strength to realize my power is temporary. This power that God has given me, whether a lot or a little, I am merely a steward to empower others with it. That is greatness. That is a person God entrusts with more power. And that was the lesson Jesus decided to teach when he felt that all power. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, would you give it a share? It goes a long way. Also, don't forget to subscribe if you haven't yet. Hey, God has something for you today. Go after it. Blessings. Blessings.